All right, guys. Welcome to Salt City. It's good to be back with you this morning. We are continuing our study through the book of Acts. We're looking at chapter 13 this morning. I didn't have time to get to chapter 14. And uh, like Jordan said, there's exciting things going on in our church, and we're in this multiply campaign. And I think all of us are feeling collectively this excitement about multiply, but there's also just sort of this uncomfortable reality that is part of our conversation with each other. And there might even be some conflict in your marriage that's related to multiply, or you might have been just having financial conversations with your connection group that makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable. And you might wonder, okay, I'm walking with Jesus, I'm on mission with him. Is this how it's supposed to feel when you walk with Jesus? Because we can have this idea easily that walking with Jesus is all about the joy and we don't often talk about the tension. And it was fun for me to open up this passage this week because we see that as the church in the book of Acts is moving out on mission, the tension actually increases. It doesn't decrease. I think that's an encouragement to all of us because we can just take a deep breath and realize we're normal. And so here's sort of the call that I think we have as a church that we see in the book of Acts that will keep us in this place of tension. It's that this church has a global mission. So what keeps us living in this place of tension, what keeps us uncomfortable is that we have a mission that is much bigger than ourselves and requires strength beyond us and for us to actually depend on Jesus and not on each other or on ourselves ultimately. So basically what we're looking at this morning is we're looking at three tensions to embrace as we move toward a global mission as a church. As we continue to take steps of faith, I want us as a church to embrace these three tensions. The three tensions are the tension between mission and unity, the tension between joy and suffering, and the tension between grace and truth. So the first one is the tension between mission and unity. We're in Acts chapter 13. We're looking at verses 1 through 5. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manny and a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews and they had John to assist them. So the first thing you might notice about the church at Antioch is they had a very diverse leadership team. In fact, there were Africans on their team, there were Greeks on their team, and there were Jews on their team, which made a lot of sense because Antioch, the place where this church was located, was a super diverse place. And we see something beautiful here. We see a diverse group of leaders working in plurality together to lead the church. And what we also see right away is that this leadership team, although they were diverse, they were unified 
in one heart and in one mind. And the way that that expressed itself is that it seems like the leaders in this church didn't have their own agenda going on. Instead, they were submitted to the work of the Holy Spirit. And the way that came about in the life of the church is that they were devoting themselves to prayer and to fasting and to worshiping the Lord. And so the way that the global mission of the church sprung out from Antioch was not that these leaders decided to have a missions meeting. And we're like, okay, let's get together and let's talk strategy about where we're going to go next and what we're going to do. Instead, they sought the Lord himself. Their goal in these meetings was to behold the beauty of the Lord, to inquire of him in his temple. It's sort of this Isaiah 6 moment. If you remember in the first few verses of Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees the Lord and he sees this heavenly host saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Isaiah was there to worship. And then he eventually said, here I am, Lord, send me. And so what we have, both from the people who end up being sent, Saul and Barnabas, and from the rest of the leaders, we have this tremendous submission. They're saying, whenever, wherever you want us to go, we will go. And so we don't have people that are overly zealous about the mission, who are coming to the missions meeting being like, I know exactly where I'm going to go, and I don't care what anybody tells me, but I'm on mission for Jesus, and I've got this calling, and I'm leaving the church, and you guys better send me. And we also don't have the group of people that are just wanting to protect comfort and wanting to protect their own agenda of sort of keeping the peace and making sure that nothing changes in the church. Instead, we have people who have placed aside their own agenda, have laid it in front of God, and have said, whatever you want to do with us, we'll do it. They're seeking the Lord. They're not seeking their own agenda. They're not even seeking a strategy. They're seeking God himself. And in that atmosphere, God says, I can work with these people. Guys, I was reminded of just the beauty of, of seeing people in submission working together this week with uh, my kids. So often, you know, when things start to get crazy around the house and then you add to that that we're having people over to our house, we put the kids to work, right? And so, you know, our three-year-old son will be cleaning the toilet or whatever. And we're telling our kids, you know, you vacuum, you clean the toilet, you get this, you know, Clorox wipe, you're going to wipe the counter, you clean off the stools. We make up jobs that aren't really jobs, just so everybody is on the same mission and doing the same thing. And this doesn't always go well, but recently it went really well. And I think that the way that that was most um, meaningful ex expressed to me is I was asking our daughter, Aria, to do a certain task. And this has just been something so cute that she's been saying lately. So I said, Aria, can you go clean the toilet? And so she has me spray like the blue 
stuff around the bowl, and then she takes the brush out, and she, she scrubs. And she just says to me, okie dokie, adachoki. And then she just, like, skips off toward the toilet. And I'm just like, this is just so delightful to me that you are so happy. And she's just skipping around the house. And, and it's almost just that magical moment. Like everybody's saying, whistle while you work. And everything is just working as it should be. And the key ingredient to that is that everyone is submitted to the same mission. We're all excited about people coming over. And so we're all excited about the mission of getting the work done so that we can have an enjoyable night with people. And in a similar way, I think in the church, we see that the church is on mission and unified when every member in the church decides that they will submit to the Lord. They will have a sub-mission. Not their mission, not their agenda, whatever God wants to do, whenever, wherever. And that's what we're seeing in our church right now. I think that's why there's the spirit of unity and excitement as we're on this mission together for Multiply. As we're giving generously of our money, we feel this spirit of camaraderie and excitement. There's a spirit of unity. We're not fighting with each other. And I think Luke would say, keep it up. Keep on that mission of submission. Okay? So you might begin to think, okay, so the church is a place where it's sort of this utopia, where everybody is submitted and everybody's getting along. And we see in this passage that Paul and Barnabas are sent out. And you might think, okay, we're expecting more of the same. Like just this tremendous unity and fruitfulness in ministry because after all, they were called by the Holy Spirit to do what they were called to do. But actually what we see next is the tension in the ministry of Paul and Barnabas between joy and suffering. Okay, Acts 13, starting with verse 8. So here's what actually happens when they're sent out. But Elymas the magician for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the pro-council away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Okay, so Paul and Barnabas, they're sent on this exciting adventure they're the first missionaries to bring the gospel overseas. We've seen people from other countries come to know Jesus in the book of Acts, but this is the first time where these missionaries are purposefully going to them. This is the gospel going to the ends of the earth. And so they're in this cutting-edge, 
church planting ministry. It's exciting. And as soon as the mission gets started, they run into deep suffering. Specifically, the Apostle Paul, the suffering is coming at him from all angles. The most obvious element of suffering in this passage is this guy, Elemas. He's this magician, and he is actually trying to undermine, in sort of a front door way, the work of the Apostle Paul and the work of Barnabas. They're preaching the gospel. They've been sharing Christ with this leader, this pro-council, and he's on the verge of coming to the faith. And this man directly opposes their work in such a way that Paul has to publicly rebuke him. But it's not just this man that is presenting suffering in the life of the Apostle Paul. At the end of this passage, you'll notice that it says that John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So the person this is referring to, this is John Mark, who actually wrote the gospel of Mark. And John Mark, for whatever reason, no one can figure out exactly why he deserted Paul and Barnabas in their ministry. So they're not only being opposed by obvious enemies of the faith, but they're also being left by dear friends. I don't know about you, but I would much rather be opposed by someone who is an obvious enemy than be rejected by a dear friend. And so you can imagine the excitement and the adventure and the cutting edge church planting has started to be muted by the suffering that's coming. And then what we also know is that the Apostle Paul was not only experiencing this relational pain from enemies and friends, but he was also sick. He actually says in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 15. He's referring to this missionary journey. And he says, And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Now, a little bit later, he says, I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Here's what's believed about the Apostle Paul's condition as he was on this missionary journey. He had some sort of debilitating, chronic malaria that the symptoms were that his eyes were sort of going blind and he had debilitating headaches. One commentary actually said that it felt like there was an iron, like a hot iron being stabbed into his temple. That's how much pain he was in. And it's actually thought that part of the reason John Mark might have left him and deserted him is because the Apostle Paul appeared to him to be absolutely certifiably insane. He's like, I cannot believe you are still on this mission when you are in so much pain. You should just give up. You should just go home. But here's what happens. In the midst of this, this is the situation that's going on. There's this tremendous suffering. But here's what I believe kept the Apostle Paul going forward. The joy. There is no greater joy than seeing people come to know Jesus. And you notice this pro-council, Paul is uh, 
you know, having this conversation with Elymas, and he's actually rebuking this magician. And this leader hears what he says. He hears his teaching against this sorcerer. And as a result, this man gives his life to Jesus. And I think what the Apostle Paul was saying throughout his entire missionary enterprise was that that's what makes it worth it. Guys, this passage was actually of tremendous encouragement to me personally this week. Uh, last week, I missed church, which I was super bummed about in the middle of our multiply campaign because um, I just got diagnosed with um, a couple different autoimmune diseases, lupus and um, Sjogren's disease. And last week, I was literally covered with um, an itchy rash from my neck all the way down to my toes. And as you guys were worshiping at church, I was in so much discomfort that I'm just walking around my kitchen, like trying not to touch any part of my body. And it wasn't the most pain I've ever been in, but it was the most prolonged discomfort. It felt like I had 2,000 mosquito bites all over my body. And here's what I was reflecting on. Since Melissa and I felt God's call to plant Salt City Church in Minneapolis. We have buried our son, and um, I have experienced more pain than I've ever experienced in my life. And here's what I want to say to you, all of you guys. It has been worth it. It's been worth it. Because we have gotten the tremendous joy of seeing 61 people get baptized. And I look back at this last year and I'd say, I would do it all over again. And I am learning, continually learning, to thank God. Because I know that we as Christians are to experience even the most deep trials as being father-filtered. In other words, the pain in God's hand is not a punishment. It is actually a gift that draws us into deeper relationship with him. And here's what I'm saying this morning. If you're in pain... I get it. It, it. Whether it's physical discomfort or it's emotional pain, I understand. And I've walked through it. And I'm saying it is my joy to be your pastor and in some way, I hope, to be able to share your pain with you. And I hope that at the end of the day, we are able to walk away rejoicing and say it's worth it because we're on this path of obedience and mission with Jesus. So we can expect with Jesus this combination of joy and suffering. And sometimes I think the more joys that we're experiencing in the ministry, the more suffering will come our way to keep us humble. And I think the reason for this, guys, the reason there's so much tension in the life of believers who are on mission is because there's actually a tension built into 
the very gospel we preach. There's this tension in the gospel between grace and truth. In other words, the gospel is both comforting and cutting. Acts 13, 36 through 43. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by from the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophet should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke to them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So here's what we have, first of all. This is very important to understand. The gospel is good news. The gospel is a message about something that has happened in history that changes everything. And the way that the Apostle Paul begins to unpack this is he connects for his Jewish audience the work of Jesus to prophecy made about him in the Old Testament. And so there was a king named David in the Old Testament, and he was God's chosen instrument in his generation, sort of a representative of God on earth. And there's a lot of confusing texts about David in the Old Testament because it seems like what the Old Testament is saying is that David would die, but that he would rise from death. But what actually happened is David, like everyone else in human history, died and just died. So everyone's like, what do these texts mean? And what Paul is saying is that David was pointing forward to Jesus. Jesus is the true king who died, and although he died, he rose from death, and now he lives. And that is good news. It's good news, because what it says is that the way to get to God is not by doing something. It's not by obeying the law of Moses. It's not by keeping religious traditions or rituals. It's not about us getting to God. It's that God has actually come down to us in the person of Jesus, and we have access to God fully and personally as kids to our dad because of what Jesus did alone. And as a result of that work, we can be justified. That is, we can be made right with God. He takes on his account all of our sin on the cross. And we get, in our account, his righteousness. So that God sees us as if we were Jesus because of what he has done if we believe 
in him. And here's where Paul is very careful to unpack that there are two possible responses to this good news. Not everyone bows the knee. People have very different responses. One is to continue in the grace of God. In other words, it's to hear this message of grace. It's to hear this good news. It's to every week when you're at church, maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time, it's to say, my works, my goodness, it's not getting me anywhere. In fact, I am still miserably far from God, addicted to things that I shouldn't be addicted to, loving things that I shouldn't love. I'm an idolater. I'm full of sin. And I need this message today as much as I ever did. That's to continue in the grace of God, to continually receive from Jesus what he has given to us. Or, as some of these people sadly did, you can scoff at the message. You can look and say, you know what? This whole Christianity thing, it's just a crutch for people who really need help. But you know what? Actually, I'm good. I actually had somebody recently say that to me as I was sharing the gospel with them. I'm good. I'm good. I'm fine. I'm good on my own. I don't need good news. All I need is somebody to give me a little bit of kind of religious information. And maybe that's good. Like, I can sort of keep the rules. Like, we can all agree that the Ten Commandments are a great idea. So I'll just try to, you know, not to murder, not to steal, not to commit adultery. And I think I'm good. Here's what that's like doing. Okay, imagine the scenario. Imagine that someone, by God's grace, found the cure for HIV. And it was just in shot form. And so they took this shot to a place where people were infected by HIV in a huge way. And they've got these shots and they say, hey, I'm jumping from place to place. And so we're only going to be here today. We have plenty of shots. Anyone who wants one can come forward. But everybody knows that if they come forward, it's going to be admission that they have been sexually promiscuous. Because it's well known that everyone in that place who has HIV has it as a result of being sexually promiscuous. So all of a sudden this guy's like, anybody can get the shot, just come get it. That is tremendously good news. But here's the thing, it's also tremendously embarrassing news. It has embarrassing implications for people because they have to publicly walk forward and come and get the shot. The only way to get the shot is to recognize in front of everyone that you've done something that you're not proud of. You know what? I think that's what keeps people from this good news of the gospel. We all know. Like, we're, we're not even fooling ourselves, right? That we have somehow escaped the sin curse, a much deeper and darker disease than HIV. 
We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the only way we can possibly receive the gospel is to receive both the truth and the grace in one package. In other words, we have to embrace that we're more sinful than we would ever like to admit. That we are sinners by birth and by choice. That we are rebels against God. And we must embrace that we need this Savior, the Holy One who did not see corruption, who died and yet lives, and who now stands this morning in front of us and offers us life. He wants us to have life. This message of grace and truth leads to life. So here's what I'm asking you to do. Will you embrace this life? This life that's not always comfortable, sometimes it's uncomfortable. It's filled with tension. It's a life where we're on mission and yet we're in submission to God, where we're in unity with each other. It's a life of joy. Yes, but as we step out and we seek to lead other people to Christ, it's also a life of deep suffering. And it's a life where we continue to embrace hard truth and we embrace the grace of God. Will you step out and continue to walk in that grace with me to receive that from Jesus? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are good. Thank you that even though life is terrible and hard and devastating at times, that you remain the same, that you are good, that you love us, that you know what's good for us and that we can trust you. We submit to you again to say, we want this life. In Jesus' name, amen.